go. Okay, so if you remember last week, uh, we talked uh, um, about Isaiah 1 through 35. And um, in review, uh, Isaiah comes at the beginning of the Latter Prophets. Um, Latter Prophets is a distinction that the Hebrew Tanakh makes between uh, these Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Minor Prophets versus the former prophets, which were Joshua, Judges, um, <laughs> Samuel, and Kings. And Zechariah actually refers back to the former prophets at one point. But these books were written earlier. These are more historical narrative that comment on the things going on uh, in the history of Israel and what, what's happening with them. Uh, as it takes it all the way from the death of Moses uh, and Joshua 1 all the way till the, the Babylonian exile at the end of 2 Kings. And the latter prophets are kind of reflecting back. Um, in, in many ways, we can call this a uh, poetic interlude because we had historical narrative uh, all the way up to 2 Kings. Now, we have had some historical narrative in Isaiah. Remember, we looked at that last week, but... We're largely going to be, especially this week, looking at um, what you would call more poetic language, prophetic language, uh, as Isaiah is commenting on the current state of Israel and speaking a lot about the future. So uh, we also saw, as we talked about last week, um, the story, and again, this is a uh, recording real historical events, but it's put together in the canon as one large story. Uh, you've got the presentation of what I meant, what I called a, a sin problem here in the Pentateuch. Uh, very opening pages of scripture with the fall of man. Uh, there was a, 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 a picture of a solution uh, a glimpse of a solution through the seed of Eve, and then the promise of uh, the Abrahamic uh, line. Uh, so we saw kind of a promise to, to deal with that, but there's still the introduction of this sin problem that continues to run through the narrative. Um, we did have at least some temporary uh, kind of ways to manage that through the Mosaic Covenant and then the leadership that Moses and then Joshua provided. What we saw once you get into Judges is that, of course, the theme of Judges is they had no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we started with, with um, in Judges that there is uh, also a, a leadership or a lordship problem as well. And these two things are related. Uh, we saw in Samuel and Kings, we saw in Samuel the glimpse of uh, the leader to come, the one that can help in this way, the promise of the Davidic king. Uh, but we also saw in Kings that uh, not only does the, not, the, 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 the wrong leader uh, not bring the people uh, towards the Lord, but the, the wrong leader can actually bring the people towards even further destruction. So we saw this lordship problem uh, in, in full force here in the former prophets. Now, I'd say all this because we come here to the culmination in Isaiah. Um, this is a, we're actually going to be presented here in the second half of Isaiah uh, with a, a very important character. Um, and this, in many ways, because of this, these two things kind of running concurrently through the canon, in many ways, Isaiah is what I would call a, a climax of the, um, the canon and its storyline, okay? So uh, that gets us going here uh, and ready to talk about uh, Isaiah uh, 36. So we'll start uh, 36 through 39. I uh, also wanted to mention that last week we talked about this concept of the remnant. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the remnant in Isaiah 1 through 35. And if you remember, we talked about how at times in the prophetic literature, the remnant is a remnant of Israel and Judah who will physically come back from the Babylonian exile. At other times, the remnant is referred to as this group in Zion in the way distant future. 
okay? And at times it's kind of ambiguous which one they're talking about, and I think that's purposeful because uh, the remnant ultimately is both in a way, right? Um, but we'll see that as we continue on uh, talking about that. But that's a major uh, kind of emphasis of Isaiah is the remnant, so I just wanted to mention that. Okay, so let's, uh, let's start here with Isaiah 36 through 39. Uh, it says here, the next section of text is also in 2 Kings 18 through 20. Uh, I have a note here. This focuses the reader on who, uh, whose, whose story we're talking about here, where we are in the story, i.e., we're talking about the exile. It's about to happen. Um, so this, this next section is there in 2 Kings 18 through 20. Uh, in the 14th year of his reign, the king of Assyria comes into Judah. But Hezekiah persuades him to leave. So if you remember Isaiah's um, 740 to 700, around that time frame, he's ministering and speaking with the kings in the southern kingdom. Of course, he also mentions a lot of things happening in, or talks about a lot of the things happening in the northern kingdom. Um, and if this is the kind of thing you care about um, from the historical perspective, 722 BC, that's when the northern kingdom is wiped out by Assyria, right? And then uh, 586, so we still have some time uh, before we get to the destruction of the southern kingdom. This is when the southern kingdom is wiped out by Babylon, okay? So, but this, Isaiah's in the southern kingdom, but he's in this time frame, okay? So, uh, let's see. So the king of Assyria, uh, but Hezekiah persuades him to leave. So he persuades the king of Assyria to leave. Um, at this point, Hezekiah seems to be somewhat willing to be a peacemaker here, um, you know, agree to uh, the, king's command, or the king's demands a little bit. Um, the king of Assyria later sends three messengers who upon arriving in Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem, threaten Judah and proclaim to the people that Hezekiah will not be able to save them. They, these three messengers, mock the idea of trusting in the Lord, stating that no God has defeated the king of Assyria. Hezekiah hears their message and tears his clothes. So he's obviously concerned about this, upset about it, Hezekiah sends a request for prayer to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah tells him not to fear. Hezekiah gets another threatening message from Assyria and takes it before the Lord to pray. He asks God to deliver them from Assyria so that all the earth will know that he is God. Isaiah gives God's answer as a word against Assyria. saying that he will send them back to the place they came from. He also says that a remnant of the house of Judah will take root, that a group from Jerusalem will survive. He says that Assyria will not come to the city. Uh, the angel of the Lord then kills 185,000 Assyrians in the night sending the king back home. Uh, so we're seeing here in, in real time, in their time frame, the fulfillment of these prophecies that Isaiah is prophesying, right? He will take care of you. There is no need to fear. God will protect you. And then we see this happening. Uh, okay, so Hezekiah becomes ill, and Isaiah tells him he will die. Hezekiah prays to God for mercy, and God heals him. This text has a writing of Hezekiah, including his request to God and his thanks for God's healing. What's the blank? Writing. writing. Mm -hmm. A writing of Hezekiah. So um, you hear me talk about this kind of stuff a lot, but um, 
Uh, we're talking about a theological composition here, Isaiah, right? But it, that doesn't mean that there's not some different sources from different people, right? So Hezekiah uh, wrote something here, but Isaiah uh, included it in his theology, right? In his theological composition. Um, so this text has a writing of Hezekiah, including his request to God and his thanks for God's healing. The king of Babylon sends a present to Hezekiah, hearing he was sick. Hezekiah shows the deliverers of Babylon all around his house. Uh, now, uh, you can see where this is going, right? The, the scripture has a lot, especially the Old Testament, has a lot of irony. <laughs> so Isaiah points this out to him. Uh, when they leave, Isaiah tells him that one day all that is in the house will be taken to Babylon predicting the exile of 587, it's 587, 586 BC. Um, let's see, what do I have written here? Uh, so, yeah, so this, um, this, he predicts this will happen. Then we have this ending here of 39. Um, so we got kind of the rest of the book is more of a shift to the future. This is a present prediction prophecy about what's about to happen to the kingdom um, or what's going to happen to the kingdom in a little over 100 years. Um, so its accuracy shows that God knows the future and rules history. Okay, this is, this is one of the, um, <laughs> this is one of the things, I mean, uh, when we talk about uh, critical scholarship versus conservative scholarship. Uh, this is, these are where they, there's a lot of differences, right? And the main reasons are for things like this, right? This is a clear uh, prophecy that comes to fruition. Um, and if Isaiah wrote it, if Isaiah said it, then that means it happened over 100 years before it actually came to fruition. Right? So a critical scholar who doesn't believe in um, the miracles of God, doesn't believe in the supernatural, is naturally going to say, well, someone 150 years later, or <laughs> typically they say even further than that, has come later and written this in. Right? Um, whereas I, I, as an evangelical, believe, well, God actually does give accurate prophecies about what's going to happen. Uh, because he has all foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen. So he does have these accurate prophecies, and he gives them to, to someone like Isaiah uh, in this instance. So its accuracy shows that God knows the future and rules history. In Kings, this passage highlights the connection between Judah's past and Judah's future. Here it serves to make a prediction on how, about how the remnant spoken so much about in Isaiah will come to be. So the future exile and rule of Judah, so those are the two blanks, future exile and rule of Judah by Babylon will one day allow for this remnant to return. The rest of Isaiah, starting with, with chapter 40, is based on the assumption given by this prediction. It is a response to the events described here. Let's, uh, let me have volunteer read. I've been talking way too much here. Yeah. yeah um, Mark, you referenced the, those who believe that it was written afterwards mm -hmm. and then incorporated. Didn't the Dead Sea Scrolls put a whole lot of that to rest? Uh, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated more intertestamental period, so uh, Dead sea, the best thing the Dead Sea Scrolls did was just affirm that the, um, the Masoretic text um, was, I mean, because Isaiah, especially like, there's a whole scroll of Isaiah that matches the Masoretic text, right? But the Masoretic text was still like, you know, post-Christ. So it just affirmed that what we think is authentic was even older. Like, we can take back, you know, manuscripts that are even older than that, but um, we don't have a manuscript in existence that from around Isaiah's time. So, um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess there are some things though that 
it would, right? I mean, there were some things that it would affirm that that people might have thought it was written afterwards. I mean, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated about what? Uh, uh, it, intertestamental, Essenes. yeah, inter yeah, Essenes were, um, you know, depending on who you ask, 150 BC, starting around there. Um, so we can't we can't necessarily date any any of the Isaiah manuscripts. There's a really good one in there. We can't date that necessarily before that, but it does. You're still talking about you know the Masoretic text is several hundred years after Christ. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of our faith in that was just faith, right? It's a little bit of blind faith, like, yeah, we believe the, the rabbis and everyone is keeping this text, right? Um, and, you know, before we had these kind of modern, you know, publishing techniques and everything, so we're just kind of trusting it. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls came along, it's like, well, look, we can actually point this even, even before the time of Christ. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a manuscript from, you know, 700 B.C., so what about as far as the, the author's style like if something was written in afterwards wouldn't they be able to say well, that's yeah well and that's a that's a big critique of um especially because now we're about to see something that's different right it's a pretty different chapter 40 and on is a pretty different style so um there's uh, many critical scholars would say, well, there's at least a second Isaiah because he's not writing in 40 through 66 the way he did through 1 through 39. Um, my response to that is, um, you know, especially the, the more critical and historical you get about thinking about these things, um, the less credit you're going to give the author, mm -hmm. right? Um, whereas I think all of these men specifically used by God and inspired by the Holy Spirit are actually theologians. And so it makes sense that they would be compiling these things from different times in their ministries and in their lives and then put them into one large composition. Now that's not to say that, um, you know, the, the Talmud actually, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the Talmud actually says that King Hezekiah was the one that actually put all of Isaiah together and you know, started passing it around among the people, like after Isaiah was dead. And now that may be, that may have some element of truth, but I really believe Isaiah is the one that kind of gave the first, you know, put this all together in one large theological composition that the people could use. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of the traditional Christian view of it. Um, so I, my view on these things in general is, um, I, I think that we should be open to the idea that perhaps, you know, these, these theologians have in their theological composition, maybe there's somebody that follows them or is one of their students or whatever that, you know, kind of maybe publishes it of some, publishes it or, you know, brings it to someone else or starts reading it out loud. And it, this concept of, uh, we talked about it two weeks ago, but you've got the composition phase and you've got this canonization phase where maybe others are collecting it and passing it around and recognizing that it's actually authoritative. Um, I think we should be allowing ourselves for that kind of a thing, um, especially when you talk about, like, say, the recording of the death of Moses in the Pentateuch. Um, but uh, by and large, as evangelicals, and I believe that the, the, the majority of these texts were written by this, you know, prophet you know, who's coming along. He's, he's observing things, and then late in his life, he's kind of putting this all together in one theological composition. And we talk about, you know, the meaning of the text and the author's intention. We're really thinking about that, that time period where he's putting it all together and he's intending all of this uh, to all connect and be part of uh, one meaning. So, um, so what the scrolls really did was authenticate all the prophecies about Christ because it was in the Testament. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was, yeah, that was a huge thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Absolutely. Yeah, they couldn't, um, yeah, because you had, you know, we're, we're going to see very specific um, prophecies about the Messiah here um, that, yes, we can definitely date from b before the time of Christ, for sure. Yep. Yeah. This first one uh, is the real time one. That, 
I remember somebody said this really affirmed Isaiah to all these people too. Yeah. Because he said, this is going to happen, and then all these people are going, sure, sure, sure. Oh, it happened. Yeah. And then everything else afterwards. So yeah. That just kind of said he is the guy. Yeah, then, he, then they have this scroll, and they're like, whoa. He, he said, said it right it, here. It yeah. happened. I saw yep. it. Yep. And we're going to get even more specific here very shortly about a prophecy he makes. I mean, very specific um, that is very affirming to, to who he is. Yeah. Because I think he's, isn't that like one of the rare times that happens? Yeah. I mean, oftentimes prophecy is a little more ambiguous, right, than this. Yeah, because so. scripture says if he, does, if he says something and it doesn't happen, right. then you should kill him. Right. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of a lot of prophecy is a little more ambiguous, a little more general, uh, not as specific as this kind of thing. Uh, but we do have instances, and I think we'll see it in Jeremiah. We'll see a very specific prophecy as well, uh, and Ezekiel too. So these three major ones, we'll see some very specific prophecies in the midst of um, some more broad, general statements as well. Um, Thirty-nine. Uh, chapter 39, 6 through 8. Then, then Isaiah, starting in 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from, from you, whom you will father, will be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there would be peace and security in my days. So um, in Kings, Hezekiah's response uh, is used to show that he didn't really get it, right? Um, which you can see here, right, when you're reading this. Uh, but here, it's more about the example of one who will have peace, like those who will return from the exile. We've already seen this emphasis on the remnant who will return from the exile. Um, here, this is part of that theme, right? There is hope in this prediction of the exile. This is going to be a major theme of Jeremiah, is that, look, if we, if we want the promises of the Messianic kingdom to come, uh, we're going to have to be destroyed, <laughs> essentially, right? This, the only way for this to happen is to rebuild on the foundation of the rubble that is going to happen from this destruction to come. So that's kind of a theme that Isaiah is hinting at here, and Jeremiah is just going to smack us in the face with it, okay? All right, uh, so I got a significance here. We saw this is a lot about God's omniscience and foreknowledge God has omniscience and all foreknowledge reflecting on this truth causes us to rely on him and look to him for answers. Again, we, we talk about these Old Testament uh, books, this literature, uh, to apply it to our lives. We need to be thinking about things that are relevant for New Covenant believers. Anytime we're talking about the character of God, uh, if these uh, passages, if these books are really focusing on teaching you about his character, these are certainly things that we can think about uh, and apply for our own lives. So for discussion, what does God's omniscience mean in relation to you and your life? What about his foreknowledge? Can we take comfort in either of these truths? Anybody, anybody have any thoughts about these questions? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of life, we all have different circumstances and happenings and concerns, and knowing this truth is mm. what gives us calm. And the more you know Him and have His beauty, mm. it just helps you rest. Mm. It's good. Teach you just don't need to worry. Mm. I mean, it's worry is presuming that somebody doesn't know what's going on. God knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And I don't really know how anything I do influences what's going to go on, but he knows anyway. Yeah. Yeah. 
worry should just go away. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Uh, just looking back at my life and, and seeing how uh, even before I knew God, he was already making things happen and sending me in a different direction than I thought I was going to go. Hmm. Uh, gives me comfort in thinking about my grandchildren oh, yeah. and trusting them to him. Hmm. Even though right now, you know, I don't necessarily think they're going the way. Not that they're not going bad, but they're yeah, not right, going right. God, so. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. My wife, she's not here, so I can say this. She has this very irritating thing she tells me. And I'll say, like, how could this happen? I, you know, this is this is terrible and wrong. She says, Did God know this was gonna happen? Well, yeah. Could he have prevented it? Yeah. Did he prevent it? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, makes sense. Yeah, right. And that's that's comforting. Yeah. That's yeah. So irritating but also challenging and comforting. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Marv. Yeah, in, we in Isaiah forty four two, thus the Lord says, Who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you? And I think it's Jeremiah, he says before I formed mm-hmm. you in the womb, mm-hmm. I knew you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't just mean, hey, that's that's Mark over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That means he knew you intimately, inside and out. Mm-hmm. That's gotta you gotta take comfort in that. Yeah. Absolutely. It's good, thank you. Makes me think of the song Pastor Drew that you played this morning, Ancient of Days. All right, let's move on. Uh, Isaiah 40 through 44. Like I said, the, uh, the style changes here, much more uh, poetry, prophetic language. Uh, but starting in there in 40, Isaiah begins the prophetic section with a message of comfort to Jerusalem, saying that God will one day shepherd his sheep. Uh, He then compares God to others, including the gods of Assyria. All fall short, and God is quoted as saying, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? Isaiah continues to encourage, speaking of God's sovereignty in dealing with other nations. He says that, quote, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah then looks to the future, introducing a servant who will do all that Israel has failed to do. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Uh, 42.4 says that he will, it also says he will bring his law. Um, So that should, students of the Pentateuch, if you were with us in the spring, that should raise some alarms. Um, At the end of the Pentateuch, Isaiah, uh, sorry, at the end of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy uh, 18, there's a prophecy about a prophet who will come and he will be like Moses. Um, and <laughs> then we saw in uh, Deuteronomy 34.10, uh, it says that there is not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. So we have this anticipation of this prophet like Moses. Here we have a mention of this servant who brings God's law. So that that should clue us into that. There's some intertextuality there. Uh, So he he shifts the discussion back to Israel, speaking about their blindness and helplessness. And he actually talks about this blindness right after he mentions in 42.7 that the servant will open the eyes of the blind. 
So in other words, he's going to open your eyes. <laughs> uh, here he calls Israel a servant as well. In the next section, Isaiah states why Israel is not an effective servant. He talks about how God loves Israel and will redeem it. God reveals more of the future, saying that Babylon will be destroyed. Yet in spite of all of this, Israel does not call upon God or honor him the way the servant should. So we've got, um, I, I wrote this up on the board. This is a frequent tool of prophets, especially. It's this concept of corporate solidarity, where you've got uh, the writer interchanging an individual for a group and vice versa. So this is, we're going to see some of this, uh, necessarily, not necessarily going to point it out here in my notes, but you see this if you read through it, where he seems to be kind of talking about the servant. He'll talk about, the Messiah, this suffering servant, the second servant, but he'll also talk about the people as the servant, and one will kind of represent the other in different um, statements he's trying to make. So that's the concept of corporate solidarity. Um, okay, so Isaiah 45 through 49. Here's the, another very specific prophecy that I mentioned a second ago. The author records God speaking to Cyrus as God's instrument that will one day make it possible to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. So uh, Cyrus is the Persian emperor. <laughs> so this is not only a prophecy about Babylon, this is a prophecy about Persia who comes in and uh, right, defeats Babylon, and they, they're in charge of the people. So this is, I mean, Cyrus is a good 150 years after Isaiah, right? So there, this is, you could see that the critical scholars going crazy, right? I mean, come on, how can you say that he knows the name of this man, right? So, uh, God, so the author records God speaking to Cyrus as God's instrument that will one day make it possible to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Um, he's actually the one that releases them and allows them to return. We see that in Ezra chapter 1, uh, 1 through 4. Uh, God can make these things happen because he is better than any idol. God speaks of his supreme power noting that other nations will be humiliated. He declares himself as the God of creation, saying that all should turn to me and be saved. He compares himself to Babylon's idols, saying he is the one who can keep promises and deliver them. God then gives a lament for Babylon saying that evil and destruction will one day come. He returns to Israel, speaking of their rebelliousness. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order, to, in order not to cut you off. Yet he must act Quote, for how can my name be profaned? Let's actually read this, uh, chapter 48. Could I get a volunteer, brave volunteer, who would like to read verses 6 through 11 of Isaiah 48? You have heard, now, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that 
from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Thank you very much. Very powerful passage here. Um, we see a picture of God's sovereignty, God's justice, uh, but we also see a picture of his grace, right? He says the new things there in, in verse 6, apparently one of these new things is that, hey, I'm delaying my wrath here. Like, this is, this is a new thing that you need to know about me. Like, I'm delaying this. Like, this should have happened a long time ago. Now I'm delaying this. Uh, but you see a picture of both here, right? And, and he says, how can my name be profaned? At some point, this must be dealt with. Um, I, I, I may, my glory I will not give to another. Um, so God promises deliverance, saying, go forth from Babylon. Both servants are again presented, the first, first Israel as the one called from birth, yet weary and discouraged. Then the second servant is presented, called from birth and asked to restore Israel, yet also a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this, I think there's some intertextuality here with the Abrahamic promises. Um, those promises were about uh, the, a seed of Abraham, someone from the descendants of Abraham who would uh, restore the blessings of creation. Um, so this, in this instance, we've got the light of the nations, my salvation may reach out to the end of the earth. And in some way, the servant will fulfill these Abrahamic promises and deal with this sin problem that we saw in the opening pages of Scripture. God will redeem the people from exile because they are not forsaken. Okay, so um, possible significance here is uh, th this passage provides a picture of God's character, one filled with loving patience yet justice. Knowing the balance helps in our relationship with our Father. Again, we're focusing on uh, big picture things. Uh, character of God is something we can certainly try to apply to our lives or think about in applying uh, with our own relationship with the Father. So how do you, per, per, how do you picture your Heavenly Father? Is He a righteous, righteous judge, a patient friend, or both? How does your picture of Him affect your behavior here on earth? Any, any thoughts there? Again, character of God, how it affects us, our lives. At one time or another, have you been emphasizing too much of one versus the other? Has that been an issue for you? I know it has for me in my life. It's interesting, Mark, because he is more than one thing, right? Yeah, right. But in perfection. Mm -hmm. And I think in my own thoughts, it's easy to take a phrase like a righteous judge mm -hmm. and think of it the way we think of it here on earth, which is maybe sometimes too extreme, mm. too far, mm. um, and get that out of, out of whack. But, um, you know, the great um, piece of that is just that, you know, he is perfection. There's, there's no imbalance. There's there's nothing that's wrong there and so it's like it's almost like I can't comprehend it but I can trust that it's true hmm. yeah it's good anybody else I yeah. think, I'm sorry yeah. Go ahead. Um, that oftentimes I will too um, lean very heavily on one um, characteristic of God mm -hmm. um, but to help me maybe to modify my own thought process and how I treat other people. Hmm. Because 
sometimes I can be very hard, like, no, this is black and white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, then remember, though, yes, God has mercy. And um, it's very understanding and compassionate. Yeah. And I, too, must demonstrate those things to show this love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. And Cheryl? I guess I've always kind of pictured him as if I was like a little kid and I went to a friend's house, it's like he was always somebody was there. It was his house. He honored me because I knew his son. Yeah. But he was always, he was in control. He was always doing neat stuff. You know, your friend was always telling you, oh, my dad does this and that. But I, I don't really have a judge thought on him because I don't ever think I went to, got into the house and thought when I show up, he's going to judge me. He's, he, and that never really, you can't imagine that happening. You know, your friend bringing you over and then the dad turning on you and going, you were bad. You know, it's, uh, I guess maybe if I did something while I was there, I'd get it. But yeah. usually I got it at home. Yeah. But, uh, but it was just like, Wow, you know your dad's doing stuff or something. Yeah, you know, he's the president of the bank, and, and uh, but never saw him as a judge. Yeah, and was that so? Is that a accurate? Are you or do you think maybe our are our own accurate. is our own father um, relationship with our own father supposed to be? a better reflection of that because our own fathers can discipline us right yes but generally your friend's father doesn't discipline you because of who he is mm -hmm. but you never got you know first off if your friend was doing something wrong you weren't going to be allowed over yeah him. so you're what, what you're saying is there's a picture of of maybe the grace that god gives us through right. salvation in christ that although he is a righteous judge he does not judge us. That's right. Yeah. Because of your friend. Your, yeah. Your, his son makes it so you don't. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. But, but you know, your, your friend doesn't tell you to come over and you show up all muddy and start tracking through the house. He goes, when you come into my father's house, you got to clean your shoes. Yeah. And, you know, you get that instruction before you show up. Yeah, or maybe maybe to further the analogy, you get the instruction, then you still do it, and then he takes the blame for it, and he takes the punishment. Uh, that's po possibly <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But generally, I think he cleans you up before you get there. He's <laughs> right. not that. He's not going to show up and go, oh, oh, I forgot. You know, it's like, you know, you show up. Son's kind of said, "Oh, we got to clean you up before we can go into the yeah, house." Right. Yeah. Right. Any other thoughts here? Picture of the heavenly Father. Okay, let's uh, let's go to the next section here, which is um, Isaiah fifty through fifty-five. So Isaiah continues discussing the second servant this time describing the suffering he will endure. Uh, 54 through 11 says he will be rejected. He has suffered like Israel has, but he doesn't turn away from it. The second servant stands with God and does not fail. Given this, the people should obey this servant. God then exhorts Israel saying, an everlasting salvation will come. This salvation will fulfill the promise to Abraham and establish justice. Uh, 51, 1 through 3, it shows that uh, the Abrahamic promises renew creation. So that's what this servant does. Uh, the creation and the establishment of, of Zion will, be, will both be renewed. The salvation will have, quote, a people in whose heart is my law. 
so I mentioned there Deuteronomy 36 through 10. This is where Moses envisions a, a covenant to come in the future where the law will be on the heart. So we see some intertextuality here. This is something that will be brought by this servant, this salvation, where the heart will be, uh, the law will be written on the heart. The justice associated with the Davidic line in earlier portions of Isaiah is now associated with this second servant. Can you repeat that one, please? Yeah, the justice associated with the second servant, I'm sorry, the justice associated with the Davidic line in earlier portions of Isaiah is now associated with this second servant. This is part of the, when I'm talking about this concept of the theological composition, right? This is, you know, you've got um, Isaiah 7 through 12, we is often referred to as the book of Emmanuel. That's what we studied last week. That's clearly a different part of prophecy from a different part of his ministry. This was um, a prophecy made um, to Hezekiah about this child that was, that was born. Well, here you have this um, connection between the child born of a virtuous woman and this second servant. So through intertextuality, through his massive theological composition and Isaiah's 66 chapters, so there's a lot here, but through all that he makes these connections so that you, the reader, can know, look, this is all the same person, right? This Emmanuel I prophesied about earlier, this is actually also this second servant. Okay, the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. Uh, God says that, quote, the exile will soon be set free. Isaiah says that the second servant, after his suffering, will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The author goes on to say that he will not be believed, but, quote, despised and forsaken of men. He is rejected because, quote, he has no stately form or majesty that, he should look, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Yet he suffers as a substitute. So we've already got some allusions to the Abrahamic promises. Now we've got a really more specific uh, connection here of how the sin problem will be dealt with. It's going to be dealt with by this servant being a substitute. He will substitute for the sins of others. Um, so this clearly also is an allusion to the substitutionary atonement of the Mosaic Covenant too, right? Um, you've got the, the goat and the scapegoat and the slaughter of the animals on the Day of Atonement. Um, this is clearly the picture here. This suffering servant will actually be a substitute. So, quote, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah then describes his death as humble and unfair. Uh, I just kind of read some of it. It's such a powerful passage, such a uh, gospel important passage. So let's let's read it. Um, can I get a volunteer to read fifty three four through six? Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Thank you. And then uh, I want to mention, I, I have the New Testament passages here. I'm just going to read 1 Peter 2, 24 real quick. It says, he himself bore our sins 
and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So you see Peter using that, that same type of imagery here, intertextuality with Isaiah, to speak about what Christ has done on the cross. Uh, okay, so Isaiah then describes his, his death as humble and unfair. He implies that the servant does all this as part of God's plan. He says that, quote, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The passage relies on sacrifice imagery of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, I got a couple of passages there, except, uh, and, uh, including uh, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. Uh, the servant takes the place of the people in substitutionary atonement, thus providing a means for this everlasting salvation uh, just presented. Uh, Zion is asked to respond to this salvation offer. Although they have been barren and afflicted, God can protect them as a husband does a wife then the offer is for everyone who thirsts. God says he will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's there in Isaiah 55, 3. It says he will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. So here we have, if you remember last week, uh, there was a mention that the people broke the everlasting covenant. And we asked the question, well, how can that be? If it's an everlasting covenant, how can you break it? But um, I think the reference there was specifically to the intention of the Mosaic covenant, um, that that's what they broke. Here, I believe, we're talking about a covenant that cannot be broken by sin. So I think this is another allusion to the new covenant. We're going to see very specific and really rich theological promises about the new covenant when we get to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, this joins the servant prophecies with those of the Davidic king, right? So he's, now he's connecting this to the Davidic king. So he will bring justice and salvation, fulfilling both prophecies. So we got the prophecies coming from Abraham, we got the prophecy coming from David. He's fulfilling both. Uh, he will be, quote, a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, Isaiah 55, 4. So he's not just a weak, frail sufferer. He's actually a leader and commander for the peoples. He's both of these things. So God's promise will come to pass. Those who seek it, those who seek it, this promise will rejoice. So why I say this is a, um, a climactic moment in the canon is that we had these two things running concurrently. Uh, Isaiah presents this servant as the one who fulfills both uh, prophecies and the one who deals with both issues. So he is a servant who represents Israel, one who has the spirit of God, yet he will not cry out like them, right? So that's the, the picture of the two servants. The one servant cries, uh, cries out every time anything happens, but this servant takes it on. He does not cry out, he, he takes on the punishment. Uh, he will have a law like Moses, we mentioned that already. He suffers, but he does not run away from it. And then he takes on uh, the sin of others. We read that already, Isaiah 53. Those who are saved by the suffering servant are part of the promised Davidic kingdom. We see that in Isaiah 55. So again, reading through the canon, the suffering servant is the one the reader is looking for. He solves both the sin problem and the lordship problem. So this is a major climactic moment um, in, in uh, the canon story. So significance here, let's talk about the suffering servant. Just as the people of his time rejected him, we can also reject the servant for whatever reason. However, those who respond will be protected and will rejoice. Have you responded to the offer of salvation made possible by the second servant? Uh, what comfort does the promise of an everlasting covenant bring to those 
who have accepted Christ. Uh, we've got a couple minutes. Anybody, any thoughts about um, anything up here? Second servant, Christ is the second servant, the everlasting covenant that he provides through his substitutionary death. I hope everyone in here has responded to this offer. If you haven't, I'm, I would love to talk to you about it privately if you, you're more comfortable with that. Okay, let's uh, finish up here. Isaiah 56 through 60. God speaks of the rewards coming to those who obey in worship and righteousness. God rebukes evil leaders for attacking the future remnant. God will free them, saying that there is no, no peace for the wicked. God tells Isaiah to proclaim aloud the sin of the people, which includes their outward shows that are void of inward substance. Uh, I think he says something like fasting is nothing without inward compassion and obedience. Uh, Christ speaks very directly about this stuff in um, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. Um, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Uh, then he gives the example of, um, you know, do not be like the hypocrites praying in the synagogues and in the street corners that they'll be praised by others. And then he talks about fasting too. You know, do not, do not fast like the hypocrites for they, um, they make themselves look gloomy in order to be seen by others. Right, so when you when you pray, when you fast, do so in secret. The Father who sees in secret will reward you. So same type of concept here that Isaiah is talking about. Uh, God requires true repentance. The people have chosen sin, however, and quote your iniquities have made a made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The author says that God sees the state of the people and is displeased. He was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. The saved remnant will live under God in Zion because of the everlasting covenant he has promised. According to the text, Zion will be glorified as God rids it of darkness and the people bow down before the Holy One of Israel. The sun and time as the people know them will no longer be needed. So this, again, speaking of future Zion on the distant future, Isaiah 66, 61 through 66, Isaiah presents another anointed one. This is really the same one he's been speaking about but one who has God's spirit and proclaims freedom. He will not bring the poor earthly riches, but will give them the right to become priests of the Lord. Uh, I've mentioned Luke 4 here because this is what um, Jesus, when he gets the opportunity to read in his hometown synagogue um, in Nazareth, this is what he reads. And then he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in before you, right? So um, this, he's, he's basically saying, I'm this anointed one that Isaiah is talking about. Uh, the author continues to speak of Zion's glory and how God will protect and save it. Zion is again presented as the place for the future salvation of the remnant. The author then gives a historical look at God's relationship with Israel, beginning with God's vengeance on the nations and his calling of the specific nation of Israel. The current plea for mercy and help from God is met with a rebuke for their sin. God says that he will, quote, not destroy all of them, but bring forth a remnant to bless. He calls this remnant his servants, 
identifying them with the servant who has brought them salvation. So again, this concept of the corporate solidarity, speaking about them interchangeably. God will redo creation with a new heavens and a new earth. This will be a place of joy as those from all nations will come and see the glory of God. I mentioned Romans 9 through 11 there. Specifically, you could look at uh, chapter 10, 12 through 13. Speak about, speaks about that. Um, some will not be there because of unbelief and be exposed to worm and fire eternally. Okay, so got a lot there. First of the, first of the major prophets, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah. We're going to spend a couple weeks on that as well. So we'll jump into that next week. Any questions, comments before we finish up? Yeah. Anybody else? Questions, comments? All right, thanks, guys. Sorry I went five minutes over.